Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 216th episode of the award-winning Diverse Minds podcast and it's Black History Month, a momentous occasion to recognise and celebrate the invaluable contributions of black people to British society and beyond. Now, black people have always been at the forefront of social justice movements, fighting against oppression and paving the way for change. However, despite their countless contributions to society, the achievements in particular of black women have too often been overlooked or forgotten. This is why this year Black History Month's theme is all about saluting our sisters and celebrating the exceptional achievement of black women. This year, the theme is all about highlighting the crucial role that Black women have played in shaping history, inspiring change and building communities. And this year's celebration will showcase pioneering Black women who've made remarkable contributions to literature, music, fashion, sport, business, politics, academia, social, healthcare and more. And today I'm speaking to the brilliant journalist Mukelwa Schlutschleier. And Mukelwa and I met at a Friends Civil Partnership, so I'm really honoured to have her on the show. And Mukelwa is an award-winning Nairobi-based journalist covering general news in East Africa. As a journalist with more than 15 years of experience, she has covered a wide range of news items such as conflict, crime and climate change. Mukelwa has reported for various international media houses, including Sky News, France 24, Al Jazeera, New York Times, and is currently the senior producer for Reuters East Africa. Mukelwa began her career reporting current affairs for one of South South Africa's then flagship current affairs show, Third Degree, in 2006. From there, she moved to the New York Times in their Southern Africa Bureau, a position that initiated her journey reporting to global audiences. And the news beat closest to her heart is women and children. This has taken her to the heart of Johannesburg's inner city reporting on illegal backstreet abortions, hijacked buildings, and stories of survivors of what was called, quote unquote, corrective rape. Now, within this episode, we are going to talk about some hard-hitting subjects, not in graphic detail, but please Please do uh, want to let you know, listeners, that there might be a trigger warning. We will be talking about war and conflict, like I said, at an overarching level. Um, But if this is distressing to you, please um, know that this is a trigger warning. But we also talk about hope and looking after mental well-being and health as usual. So, Mikelwa, a huge welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a joy. And I know you're super busy, so I'm so grateful. And I just read out your bio, but I think it'd be great if you could tell listeners what you're working on at the moment. At the moment, um, a few things. Um, so I cover East Africa for Reuters News Agency. Um, and basically at the moment, we've got things happening in uh, Ethiopia. They, you know, so there was the wars, you know, um, uh, that started in 2020 in the north part of the country. Um, and then a peace agreement was uh, reached at the end of last year. However, um, there's been another conflict that started in an- another region. Um, but at the same time, there's been another uh, conflict um, in another region called Oromia. So the current one is in Amara state. And so there just seems to be these um, ongoing conflicts in, in that country. Um, a lot of people say it's, you know, the federal uh, system of governance is not quite working because, you know, it's so many tribes, so many groups, some of them want to secede and want to become completely independent. Um, at the same time, the government is trying to bring them to centralize them more and um, the semi-autonomous states are feeling that the government is trying to take away their power. And so, yeah, so that's how the 
uh, current conflict in Amara began. And so, yeah, we've been trying to cover that from a distance. I am also working on this ongoing issue in Uganda after it passed um, an anti-homosexuality bill a few months ago um, and basically criminalized same-sex um, relations um, punishable uh, up to life. And so there's been some people that have been arrested, um, some groups that we spoke to that um, are sort of activists and, and advocates for the LGBTQI community have been shut down. Um, some people from the community have also been uh, evicted from their homes because basically the law says that um, if you know of anyone um, that is part of the community, you've got to report them. Although at some point they watered that down, but it didn't um, filter down to ordinary people. So, you know, you have situations where landlords, for instance, um, were just evicting people from, from their homes and people are struggling to live. Um, even the employment has been jeopardized for some of them. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's not an easy time, um, I think, in the region. And uh, we've got the Congo elections coming up in December and already, you know, there's a, an ongoing conflict in the eastern part of the country. Um, that the latest story we did on that on Tuesday was a massacre that happened at the end of August where police opened fire on some protesters that were basically protesting the presence of MONUSCO that's been in the country for more than 20 years since sort of the previous Congo wars. Um, and there were, you know, the, this this group calling themselves was Alendo. They um, linked to sort of um, African spiritual church um, they were saying that, you know, the presence of these foreign troops are not helping. We need only our soldiers. But then the government soldiers took that as an attack on them and opened fire and killed about 56 people. So, yeah, it's been sort of, you know, con yeah, covering lots of conflicts at the moment um, and also some other social issues. And just you saying that I don't really have any words, to be honest, because I think the other problem is in the global north. We're just very, <laughs> there are things going on, of course, and there are things that are unjust to people, but the scale of it is so different. And we're so, I think, insulated from it. So when you're talking about these conflicts and the trauma and the pain, how do you have hope and how do you kind of, how does it not impact on your negatively on your well-being? I mean, it's very difficult. Um, I haven't always been covering conflicts, um, but it's, you know, and when I have, I've done it in different places and it just seems to be the same story, just, you know, in a different package or a different region. Um, and yeah, there doesn't seem to be any political will to try to, um, you know, to, to you know, to try to calm things or to solve the issues. Um, and then after the conflict, then there's always this issue of transitional justice that just uh, doesn't happen. Um, so, for in, for example, um, when the war broke out in, in Tigray, the EU said that they were going to stop funding to the federal government of Ethiopia. Um, it's basically it's a, it's an aid uh, reliant country. They rely very heavily on aid. And so, so they said they're going to stop funding, but they were going to fund people through other UN agencies. So funding, um, you know, WFP for food, um, the World Health Organization for um, the health uh, needs and requirements of some people that were caught in the in the conflict. Um, and then only on Monday, um, the EU uh, announced that they were going to give 
millions of euros to the government again because they want to normalize the relationship. Um, and so this was very, I mean, it was very ironic or really sad simply because the EU are the ones that took to the, that basically started a process in the UN of trying to um, bring some kind of accountability for the human rights violations that were happening in Tigray. And when they did that, they, the EU said that they would only normalize relationships when they know that there's a there's an actual pathway towards transitional justice and that um, there would be cessations of hostilities. Yet they've uh, released this money to the government at the same time, as I said, when there's this new conflict in Amara and the ongoing one in Oromia. At the same time, uh, Tigray, as much as they've signed the peace deal, it's not completely at peace. Um, there was the issue of the government having enlisted Eritrea to fight uh, on their side in that war. And some of those troops um, are reportedly still there, still committing uh, uh, atrocities and human rights violations against uh, some communities in Tigray. So the EU releases this money to this government that has um, basically refused any outside or international scrutiny into what happened, who's responsible, because all, you know, there were, there were uh, violations um, on all sides, you know, and so you know, it's 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 really it really makes one despondent if such a body that said you know their commitment was that we are only going to step in and help when the government has made you know these steps, but then they went ahead and did it even though all of you know the the, the government hasn't honored their side of 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 the agreement. So yeah, it's 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 quite it's quite disheartening because it's not only happening in you know on the domestic level, but it's also happening in the international level where these international bodies are support. You know, we think or hope they that they would help in trying to bring stabilization to these uh, regions um, and try to sort of encourage the government or force the governments even um, to, 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 to basically normalize their countries and bring some kind of stability. But instead, they do the exact opposite. And so it just means, you know, what commit, whatever commitments government, governments make when they're signing these peace agreements or commitments that bodies like the UN or the UN make, um, you know, those mean, it means that all of that is compromised. When, you know, do we then believe them if they say, for instance, in Sudan, they will only come in and help when there's a cessation of, of violence because it seems they don't honor their own um their own policies. So yeah, it's 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 quite difficult. It doesn't, it's like they, you know, there's violence. Um, for the people from their domestic governments and leaders, but also from the international community. So, you know, violence in front and violence at the back. It's it, it's a very difficult situation because you've got millions of people who are displaced, millions of people who've suffered horrific traumas. Um, and, you know, when will they ever get peace? Um, I mean, and transitional justice is just one step. If you've got a whole society that's, been living with with trauma perpetually. I mean, you you know can only imagine the kind of mental health or not um, that the people live with on a day to day basis. So how do you begin to build a nation state that is cohesive, that is united? 
there's not much hope, I think. Um, so in other regions are worse than others, but basically it's, it seems like it's the same for a lot of these countries um, in the in East Africa where I am. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really tough. And, and I think given what you have to, what you, well, what you do report on and what you do, ha- you know, what was your journey to becoming a journalist? Is this something you've always wanted to do? Yeah, yeah, it is actually. So um, I was about seven years old, I guess, when I taught, when I said to my mom I wanted to be a journalist. Um, and she said she was always surprised by that because um, I didn't know anyone who was a journalist. She didn't know anyone who was a journalist or my parents, you know, didn't. Um, and so it was very different. And I've just sort of said I want to be a journalist and that's what I uh, I set out to do. I guess I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to tell stories that have meaning, stories that would help. So, I, yeah, I was born in Swaziland. My father was, um, uh, he was part of Mkonto uh, Wesizwe. So he was um, a liberation uh, fighter um, when South Africa was uh, still under apartheid. And so there was always this sense that, you know, things need to be set right or, you know, there needs to be solutions. And so, yeah, I remember watching Aman Poe when I was young and thought, oh, okay, maybe, you know, journalism is the way to go um, because, you know, she was reporting from all over the world these various conflicts. And I thought, you know, you know, telling these stories uh, could be important. So, yeah, so I sort of stuck to it until now. Oh, that's really amazing. And, um, you know, the, the the reason I really wanted to have you on the show is because this year's theme for Black History Month in the UK is saluting our sisters and ensuring that black women are remembered around the globe and what they do. And I think, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts in ensuring that all female black voices from the whole continent, and of course, we know North, East, West and South are very different because there's huge, you know, differences in mileage and language and culture, but are given a platform to be heard in the global North because I feel that these voices are totally forgotten about, not heard and not known about. Well, okay, so when I started reporting, especially for international media, you sort of do a story and then you try to get an analyst or an expert to sort of explain. And I remember sort of going into communities in South Africa that were protesting over service uh, delivery or lack of service delivery. And, um, you know, one of the um, the people, one of the community activists I spoke to, you know, asked me, like, why do you, you know, you come and you, you know, you interview us and then you go back to your studios and you get some professor from the University of Johannesburg to basically decode our situation and explain to you what we are going through. Um, and he said, we are the ones that are going through this. They can only theorize it um, from an academic point of view. And so um, then I started to try to get more of those voices from the community to, to for them to be um, uh, the voice of authority about their own situation. And I found that actually there's a lot more that they were doing besides being victims and 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 shouting and throwing stones at police. Um, you know, they were very active participants in what was going on around them. So, for instance, in this particular community, um, they started to organize uh, themselves as as a. Um, as sort of like a political formation in order to run for council positions. And so within these grassroots movements, um, they would elect someone who would run for them, they would vote for them. And then in order to try to to sort of um, maintain the movement, the person that was elected and chosen, they'd have to sign a contract um, that they're 
bulk of the salary would go back into the social movement to build the social movement. Um, because a lot of the times what would happen is that people would run for a, a council seat um, and then they would basically move out of the community and then parachute in only when there are issues. And so they realized that, you know, they kept getting a, a raw deal with that. And so basically to try to keep resources in, uh, in, in the community um, to also have a kind of institutional knowledge of how the organization works within the community and and you know the things that they, they're trying to embed within they just made sure that you know they weren't electing politicians they were in theory politicians but it was also someone from their community that they would send forth to basically represent them and they and then they set up this system of of accountability um and so you know so, i mean i thought that was really great because oftentimes you know the you know the experts or the voices of authority pontificate about the history of this and the history of that and why communities are so angry um, when they themselves were, uh, were perfectly capable of voicing who they were, what they wanted, and you know, and and were very um articulate in in saying these are our rights. Our the constitution um protects this, and you know, they really did lots of deep dive um studying into, especially in local government elections, in in what the state needs to give them, what's their responsibility, and so um yeah, so that so so basically that's how. Um, I, I tried to do it. And, you know, a lot of them were women because, you know, a lot of them were was, was single women, young women, um, uh, single uh, parents. And so, yeah, it was their voices that I tried to um, uh, to, to highlight in, the, in that regard, because oftentimes the way we frame um, um, people, uh, you know, especially like in social movements like that or, or, or victims or that, you know, it's just, yeah, we sort of like frame them as their victim. Um, they are just an object in some way, if I'm making sense. Um, mm. Whereas then actual, they they are uh, uh, autonomous, you know what I mean? And also have a kind of agency um, that sometimes, you know, you know, you know, we weren't reporting it that way. And so I really wanted to put them in the center of their own story that they were telling, because it's not easy for people to to tell you their story. So when you sort of relegate them to, you know, someone we're talking about instead of someone we're talking to and they're telling their story, I think it does a, a big disservice, especially whether they are activists or survivors of rape, you know, they are, you know, they are the story and they need to be treated with that much, that much respect, I think. Yeah, it's, it's so true about the point, isn't it, with a with the academic and all countries do this, I feel like in the news, um, and then they kind of go to the academic expert who tends to be from a group that holds more power than the people from the social movement, usually, um, to explain, you know, why are they behaving like this? And they don't ask the question like that. But yeah, you explaining it like that, I think is so helpful, because I don't think I'd been as cognizant of it as you've just um, highlighted. The other thing I feel really strongly about is mental load being spread. So, you know, this kind of idea that definitely in the in the UK and the global north, um, you know, black people and uh, South Asian people and Southeast Asian people and Arab people are responsible for educating people about racism as one example. But if mm. we think more broadly and, and the themes that you have been talking about, you know, how can all of us and and really thinking about those of us who are global majority, but not black, not from black communities. And um, mm. we really need to be emphasizing the crucial role that black women have played in shaping history, inspiring 